It is estimated that 75% or more of all silent films have been lost forever. Negligence, greed, malice, and war have overseen the erasure of the majority of films' earliest years. But all hope is not lost. Long-forgotten films are being rediscovered in the unlikeliest of places. For the first time in over a century, we are able to return to context these previously unknowable works. It is our job to write the next chapter of their histories. Ashes to classics, rescued from oblivion. Welcome back to another Ashes to Classics, the podcast where we revisit the silent films that were lost and have become the classics. We've been going through some really interesting films, a lot of firsts, starting off this kind of first mid this, this pre-season arc, as if we used the, the parlance of American television. Um, I'm Stephen, this is David, by the way. Hi, Stephen. One always forgets to get caught up in the conversation. Um, this one was a film I had not heard about before you introduced me to it. Um, so later on in the podcast, we're going to talk about The Toll of the Sea, which if I believe, and you're going to correct me because I bet there's a specificity here that means it's not the case. Is this the first surviving Technicolor film? Yes, and but... almost almost the first Technicolor film. It is the second Technicolor film ever produced. And but the, the first, first surviving? The oldest surviving, yes. Cool. And also the first... That did not require a special projection technology. Mm, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we'll, 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 we'll get to all kinds of things later. I'm going to talk about the film Now at Last and colour separation later. Get excited for that. Um, but yes, we'll get to that. Colour in film and all kinds of things. Um, but first of all, I mean, I'm going to borrow a joke that you've made already off the podcast. So now it's mine, but now I've been credits, so it's fine. Um, we're going to talk about the experience that perhaps coloured your opinion of the film. Because yes. you have been away on your hollybobs. You've been down to a different part of the country. Though actually, oh, here's a, a little aside. So I, I went to the cinema yesterday, as I want to do. And I went to see She Said, which I think is actually quite good. Um, and it's a shame people have not seen it. But there's a great bit in it that kind of like shows the difference between like... American thought and English thought and this joke wouldn't go down as well in the Americas as it does here so mm-hmm. the journalist comes over to the UK to do some investigative work and they're in London and they need to go to Cornwall and they go into I think they're just talking to like a flight attendant or someone that's working in an airport it's unclear where maybe it's like some travel agent they're like can I get a flight to Cornwall and my head being like what are you talking about it's like <laughs> where would you even fly to because um, like it's about Newquay airport I'm like I guess Newquay is an airport and the person's like so she's like uh, New Quay airport and it's like a Newquay and the person is like yeah usually we take the trade she's like okay then fine <laughs> but it's just because I, I presume I don't know so you went to San Francisco, yes? Yes, yes. I How did you to, get there? I, I flew. But I debated cool. I, I, uh, before getting there. So I went to the uh, the San Francisco Silent Film Festival. Uh, cool. It was the, their program in Caldy, a day of silence. SFSF. Brought my stuff with me here. My, my booklet they gave me and my badge that I had for the day. I just, yeah, I, I did it kind of on a whim. I just decided one day, I was like, it's got to be a film festival somewhere that just show a bunch of silent films sometimes yeah. i see about these i hear about these gatherings so i just googled it and that's what came up from the website silentfilm.org so and i cool. was like yeah yeah i'll just i'll just do that i think i booked that in like the summer or something but mm. like leading up to it then i kind of wasn't so sure i was like oh no i don't even know like what the cost is going to be to get there and on top of this yeah. is it going to be more correct? because because i'm on the west coast there was definitely the option to drive from portland how to long San would Francisco. that take uh, I think that was like 
15 hours maybe maybe t- somewhere between 10 and 15 uh and, and that it's, wide it's, of a range oh that i have there kind of gives you an impression of how much more we're, we're kind of willing to drive this is, over this here. is hilarious to me because i mean you are coming to england soon and Vaughn is coming to england soon and we've, we've been uh-huh. in, mid, in conversations with a bunch of you about like meetings up at places and like because i live in the north of england and people are primarily visiting the south and my head being like it's the other end of the country and like, i have to drive out to london and be like oh, that's a long drive to london it's like three hours four hours yeah. <laughs> but, like, that's, because le- it's that's england, less time that i'll be drive. driving home for the holidays for christmas it's about a four God. and a half hour drive from here back to my my parents' place. So well, I'm flying out to Spain for the holidays. So there you go. <laughs> it's a it's a longer journey, all told. Um, but we we weighed it. We looked at the the cost efficiency because it's not just the plane ticket versus gas. You know, it's also mm. like uh, if if we were driving, it was like an additional night of staying in a hotel. Yeah. You know, to make sure we could make it. Whereas the flight, like we literally flew in the morning of the festival and then just flew out the next day. And then with that factor, though, I had to consider like. Uh, ubering around and stuff how much additional that was going to cost which wasn't really ultimately when it shook out it was like well i guess flying is less expensive for me and you know the depressingly so yes (laughs) yeah it was it was unfortunate because i i do love taking a road trip as well you know and Mm. and that would have been nice you kind of get to define your own schedule that way you can make stops off and see interesting things that and and that was the kind of other big trade-off with going here like and just doing a flight it was literally like we were at the festival and we went and like walked around the the neighborhood a bit, which was yeah. also a highlight of the trips in the. What Castro. was what was the neighborhood? Okay. Uh, it was I, Castro. I, so I know of yes, of of course, like very very mm. famous, and it was it was a very welcoming, very beautiful area. I I love being there. I I felt like like it was very warm and open community yeah i i loved seeing yeah. how how very open it was. It's uh, I guess for those who don't know, it's it's probably the most prominent gay neighborhood gay area in in mm. the country i might even think it's it's the uh the district where harvey milk was uh, as a politician and his his presence is everywhere where you go there you can see his legacy yeah so that was really wonderful that was an wonderful talk, before thing. we go into the, the specifics of the films at the film festival it's about like film festival like film like endurance kind of things so i've not been to it in person actually no i had to tell a lie no i'd be i have been to i went to a um a horror film festival a few years ago, just like pre-COVID, so it feels like it never actually happened. But Grimfest in in Manchester to see some horror movies and Q and A's, and it was really really cool. Um, saw some cool movies, like very small kind of things that were just like trying to get distribution, but it was really really cool. But the only kind of like, thing I think of is in July going down to London, so therefore an equivalence of driving for it to go see Saturn Tango in the cinema, and being very very excited. And then working out the logistics of how do you fit your day around this massive thing. Because, like, Saturn Tango is, as you know, seven hours and 20 minutes long. Yeah. Um, so, you're like, that's a lot of time in cinema. And I was, like, planning out being, like, I need to eat lunch at some point. Like, I need to drink. But I don't need, want to go to the toilet, which I don't, you don't want to hear about listeners. But it's like, <laughs> so, thankfully, there were intervals. It's, like, popping out in, um, this is um, London's Leicester Square, um, the Prince Charles Cinema. My probably second favourite cinema in the country, Astonishing Cinema. And just, like running out, being like, oh god, where can I grab lunch quickly, blah blah blah. Did you have that same hectic of, like, how do you fit your day-to-day life admin around watching a bunch of films? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, what we ended up doing is we, we skipped one of the films they were showing, which was around lunchtime, okay. and it was, uh, I, I kind of regret missing out on it, but at the same time I yeah. kind of expected, and uh, it was it was an obscure... You do need to eat, though, that's the thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it, it was around that time, and it was a film that I guess was of slightly lesser interest to me, uh, mm-hmm. But still, I, I would have loved to to see. It was a uh, kind of a lesser known Spanish film named uh, uh, Por Don Carlos. Oh, cool! 
so yeah, I, I regret missing out on that, but it allowed me to uh, survive and eat yeah. <laughs> and get to see all of the other prominent films that I felt were going to be helpful for me, kind of filling out historical blank yeah. spots for the future and such. So like, you know, I didn't want to miss like the Lubitsch film, for instance, that played oh. before it. So what did you see then? What did you see? How many films did you see, first of all? Eight. Eight movies, uh, three of which were shorts. Okay. So eight movies, three shorts. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry, four four features, because I skipped Don Carlos. I'm, I'm... Ah, of course. Yes, 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 yes. So, seven movies. <laughs> that's a lot to get from I presume none of them are hugely long, but that's still a lot. No, I think the longest one was still less than 90 minutes. Um, nice. You know, the, the shorts were very nice to start with, you know, yeah. all between 20 to 25 minutes each. And then you know, in the other two features, uh, or two of the other features were like an hour. So that's that's always really good. And that made it yeah. easy to kind of marathon through everything. You knew, e- even if one was starting to like wear you down, you're like, oh, it's almost at the end and then I'll get a bit of a break. That would be really nice. So the movies, tell me about The them. movies, yeah. So I thought it was a really great program they lined out and I was really happy with all of the ones I saw. They were all interesting in different ways and a good, a, a decent amount of variance, I would say. They started it smartly, I think, with three Buster Keaton shorts. Three of the best. Awesome. And these were the only films I had seen prior going to the festival here. Oh, okay. Very interesting. But it was, it was a nice way to start. It's, you know, Buster Keaton's a surefire hit with anybody and everybody. And these were some of his best films ever. It was The the High Sign, The Electric House, and The Goat. And the last one in particular, I think, is just... It's The Goat. You said The Goat is The Goat. Yeah, yeah. The Goat is The Goat. I think it's absolutely one of his most brilliant, perfect films. It's essentially just an elongated chase sequence, you know, throughout that just kind of escalates and escalates as it goes along in increasingly daring and hilarious ways. Are, have you seen all of those ones before? I've not seen any of them. Um, I, I oh. my, my Keaton is limited to the kind of like the features, so to speak, yep. and like the ones that everyone speaks about. So I need, I need to divulge. I've seen more small chaplains than I have small Keatons. Yeah, um, see, that's the need, that's the thing with this that. with this feature elitism that we kind of tend to to carry on yeah. with here is that it ignores some of the most brilliant work that was done yeah, know, prior yeah, yeah, to yeah. that. Especially when it comes to Keaton stuff, I think even more, especially in comparison to contemporaries like Lloyd and Chaplin, whereas mm. it feels like they incredibly blossomed they really hit their their streak with the feature work some of keaton's best stuff is throughout all of his short work all of which he yeah. you know, was producing on his own uh, i think well. sherlock jr aside when i think of keaton i think of the sequences that stand out so i can imagine like them in absentia of a greater feature like um oh god what is the the one with the house falling down with the wind oh that's uh, steamboat bell jr the, the kind of yeah, yeah yeah so like that 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 as an entire feature i think is fine and those sequences are just absolutely brilliant so i can yeah. imagine short form keaton being utterly spectacular yeah so in some cases where it's like if you just imagine the whole typhoon sequence of yes the, the end of sherlock or sorry uh the end of steve bill jr yeah. it, some of those are just like entire you know the shorts film from beginning to end they're just the, that amount of brilliance cool. Cool, cool cool okay yeah that, you you have sold me on i guess buster keaton so thank you <laughs> hard sell i know but yeah. I, i'm glad i pulled it off so the, the second film I saw was the Lubitsch one, which I mentioned, which mm. was Forbidden Paradise, which okay. uh, is a... Well, is that a prequel his... to Trouble in Paradise, then? No, but it just, is... Just loves Paradise. Is it thematically or, like, stylistically aligned? No, not with Trouble in Paradise, but it is with a different Lubitsch film later Gosh, on in his I career. forget about the Lubitsch CU, you know, all the, all the connections. <laughs> later on, Lubitsch produced. He was going to direct, but he ended up uh, falling ill, but he did all the 
pre-planning and everything and rehearsals with the actors, a film called A Royal Scandal. And both Mm. A Royal Scandal and Forbidden Paradise are based on a play called The Tsarina. And it's basically a a send-up kind of uh, parody of these kind of Ruritanian romance films, which Lubitsch was very popular at making these big, you know, lavish yeah. uh, pol- political dramas or, or whatever. And it's, it's just like a, a farcical take on that that really plays into the sexual politics and the, you know, the uh, heavy innuendo that are very quintessentially Lubitsch. And, you know, Forbidden Paradise, I think, is such as a great early exemplar of that. And it's so funny. It's so funny from the beginning to end. And it's got all of the, the great wink and the brilliant class of Lubitsch film. You know, the suggestion that's very body, but never too, like, like overt, if you get what I mean. It's, it's, it's again, it's that, it's that enigmatic Lubitsch touch that's, you know, even somewhat <laughs> difficult to describe. It's, it really is just like this perfect marketing shtick for him. Have you seen um, the Coen brothers' Barton Fink? I mean, you've oh, seen all yes. the Coens, haven't you? You know, they talk about that Barton Fink feeling, and I guess you'd know you'd know mm-hmm. more than anyone else thinks you are Barton Fink. It reminds me of that, to the Lubitsch touch, where it's like, yes, it is a joke that it is a bit, but it also like, yeah, it's just, you know, ineffable. That Barton would, Fink yeah. feeling, that Lubitsch touch, it's got and it. I, I was thinking about it recently as well, uh, at, you know, after the film, and how I was thinking about how there's so many others who kind of emulate or are inspired by Lubitsch, most famously probably like Billy Wilder, who kept a sign above his office door that said, how would Lubitsch do it? He's a big, you know, inspiration <laughs> You've mentioned that to me before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought about it, I was like, you know, Lubitsch could make a Wilder film, and he did, even at one point, mm. uh, you know, several times. But I don't think Wilder could ever make a Lubitsch film. You know, he's much too reliant on on wordplay, on on language specifically, and the very visual craft and the suggestion that Lubitsch creates from from camera work and staging mm. is so singular that I well, think yeah, anyone I mean, I... who came after can't really ever replicate it. I think it's fair to say, but obviously this is more your sphere than mine. That Lubitsch is more known as a sound filmmaker than he is a silent filmmaker. Yes, absolutely. Um, but therefore, it's interesting that maybe that sensibility, that class, that subtlety comes from cutting your teeth on silent film, where it's like a different a different grammar that you are playing with, and the directors that don't have that come out differently. I mean, we talked about earlier about like the the technology underpinning silent film is different, and the photography background and that that loses itself, and maybe the dynamism and the the artistry of shots in early talkies. So maybe I think maybe that that Lubitsch touch, especially in the sound era, is very much from the the residue of his brilliance in the silent era. I would say absolutely, and you can see it in other filmmakers that that made the transition, like uh, I think John Ozu. Ford. Yeah, Ozu, good, another great example. I don't, I don't, I don't think his. I mean, I've seen all of his surviving silent work, and some of it is is utterly brilliant. I love the Knight's Wife. Um, I love I Was Born, but and there's a there's a whole but series. There's, there's, there's quite a bunch that are really, really good, but it is very much that sense of you can see him setting up his cinematic syntax. This is the way that Ozu starts to make films, and then when he goes into talking and color and everything, oh. Utterly fabulous. Takes yeah. off. Turns out Ozu, pretty good. Yes, you're Ozu. Good <laughs> filmmaker. Who knew? Um, I was surprised to find that this was actually not that well-known of a film. Not okay. many people are... And, and it's because of a lack of availability. It's not yeah. released on home media whatsoever. Oh, wow. And, but it was a film I learned about just slightly before I found out about the festival. Hmm. Because I was like, oh, I, I'm like, I love A Royal Scandal, which I'd seen before. And I was like, oh, I got to see the silent version then. I bet it's like just as great or at least, you know, it'll be interesting as a comparison point. And then when that I... That is really interesting then because that is very Ozu because quite a few of Ozu's films, there are yeah. at least two that I can think of of the story of Floating Clouds and then Floating Clouds and I was born but 
then becomes Good Morning of the I tried this idea out in silent and now I can I guess mm-hmm. those who are always I, I mean I'm going to use this is like my boss baby thing because I'm not as versed in silent <laughs> film as you so it's going to go back to Ozu a lot because I've seen a lot of silent Ozu of that sense of filmmakers who are always trying to make sound films but couldn't make them like that mm-hmm. wanted to express of dialogue I think there's always that sensibility of and Hitchcock is the same isn't it of Hitchcock of, of remaking his own films very, of that very sense common. of now I can do it more and now I can do it better I can do the film I wanted to do because John Ford did it, DeMille did it a number of times, very famously. So, Michael yeah. Haneke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Obviously so, a different circumstance, but... So very very common for uh, silent film directors to then go and remake, because yeah, the, basically after the, the transition to sound, like the, it was just considered that silent movies were dead. They were no longer yeah. a thing. So yeah, why not just redo what did work before oh, yeah, and if you know you've made something that you know is good and worked and you had passion for that's like how can i get an audience to this and this is so far beyond before the days of i can watch this film anywhere or have any kind of like subsequent release it's like how do you get that story back out there again that story worth telling yeah makes sense mm-hmm. but yeah i was i was surprised to learn that because i was already looking for the film before mm. i found out about the festival but then i stopped once i saw it was going to be there i was like oh i'm yes. gonna make that first thing. yeah i'm gonna go see this at the at theater with a live orchestra playing and that was, of course, incredible. The restoration of it was beautiful, very colorful with all of the tints that they used throughout the film. Yeah, we'll talk that more about, really about color later. Yeah. So yeah. W- w- was there a, a, a continuous orchestra throughout? Is it like the same collection of players that played for each film? There was a, a full orchestra. It was a five-piece orchestra. and So I guess not a full orchestra. but and then <laughs> A full on... five-piece orchestra. <laughs> yeah. But on some films, they only had the pianist there okay. playing. So, like, the, the Buster Keaton shorts were accompanied by the, the pianist. and Yeah, then... that would feel weird to me, I guess, because there is yeah. such a comedic association with that style of piano and that style of film that I bet it could work with, the, like, an amazing piece of orchestra, but you're just so used to, and there's the diggity-donk, clankity-clank piano, and there's Buster Keaton falling over and being thrown around. Well, it's funny, because I was interested for certain bits, because there's there's one bit in the high sign where... Yeah. Uh, th- there's a gag where he's doing a-, a shooting range thing effectively and he has to make this sound where it hits this bell every time. And so in accompaniments that I've had for home releases, yeah. they usually add in the sound effect. And for this time, I-, I heard a bell go off and I was and I was watching the screen. I wasn't paying attention to the pianist at first. I was like, wait, he's there's someone there with like a triangle or something? What's what's going on? <laughs> and, I- and I was trying to watch the... the- pianist from like i was peeking around whoever was in front of me and i saw that he had a little like bell on top of his oh, piano so he would just cool. ding. he would ding every time it so it was funny like i was i was doing a little bit of watching yeah, the making your folio on the spot absolutely love that that was yeah that was really a, a wonderful thing to see as well mm. how it's how it's interpreted live which is something i guess i'll talk about with other films here to come yeah i i, I read um uh, a Laura Mulvey book over the summer and I forget who the filmmaker was in fact I think the book's over here so I can find out um, could be better to name the filmmaker yes it is here's the book um, <laughs> edit around um, so yeah After Images by Laura Mulvey which is really really good um, a recent obviously she is hugely famous for the the male gaze the article that led to kind of like that theory and the popularization of um but where are we um here i think yeah morgan fisher films on projection and the projector um it's a really interesting chapter and it's basically about this idea that this filmmaker fisher is obsessed with his idea of film because he's an experimental filmmaker and i think does work in like silent film and whatever and is obsessed with his idea that 
film as a medium gets experimental, but no one experiments with the medium used to create films. Like, why aren't people playing around projectors and using projectors as part of, like, the performance of film? So I like that idea of, like, the, the filmic performance around you. So he does, like, installations where he is making projectors run in weird ways to therefore further manipulate the film. So film as a grand performance, which I guess goes back to, like, the um, the Japanese silent film tradition of, of, of the Benchy as well, of, like, we are performing the art of the cinema in front of you. And you've got a little bit of that by your little friend with the bell clinking along to your film of having the film performed at you. Oh, what a joy. Yeah. So the the next film I watched after we came back from having lunch was Cecily DeMille's The Cheat, which is a 1915 film. And I was okay. interested in seeing it because I knew it as a famous film that launched the career of a uh, Japanese-American star named okay. uh, Cecilia Hayakawa. So it was it was interesting to me as this kind of very specific appeal yeah. that films of the 1910s allowed in American cinema. There was there was this very small niche for certain performers to kind of break out and have a genuine appeal despite the limitations and the inherent racism of the system in the country yeah. there at large. Uh, it's also going to kind of relate back to the film that we'll be discussing as well for yes, opportunities yes, for it is. Yes, it actors is. for gender reputation. Now, the cheat is not as flattering portrayal for... Really? Uh, In a Cecil B. DeMille film? You're telling yeah. me it's maybe a little bit racist? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Most notably for there's a, there's a very intense tr- triggering scene of a uh, sexual assault. About halfway through the film. How did they caveat that? Are there, is is have in your literature there? Is there like a warning? Was there any kind of declaration, or is it just like his? There was his, an introduction. There was okay. an introduction provided by a a. Uh, oh, I wish I I gotten his name written down here. I'm not gonna flip through to find everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was but, an introduction. Yeah, but he was he, he was a uh, someone who's very invested in the the career of Sasuke Hayakawa's mm. and did a lot of research to it and was very forward about the the inherent racism of the story and the characterization okay, there. That's good. But also was keen to emphasize how this kind of thing was a big showcase for him as a performer. Yeah. And that's one of the big things that was the takeaway as well. He really became a matinee idol and a, a modern-day sex symbol at, at the time period in mm-hmm. ways that well, I mean, other... we, we will talk about this in the film today of, of the concept of Orientalism and it sounds like even that is falling into that of like yes it, it comes fame but it is a commodified kind of fame where you are still very much this cultural object so it's very much like a step forward and two steps back um, mm-hmm. but a very interesting thing to discuss especially from our positioning where we can just like discuss around it um, right. but yes but yeah so, so that interesting you know, kind of muddy area where mm. you can, you know, where it provides opportunities and, you know, are, are artistic avenues for, you know, performers on a singular level, but at the same time in a very kind of uh, condemning and demonizing yeah. portrait. Like, even even at the time, you know, it was something that was considered very offensive to a lot of the Japanese community and Sasuke yep. Hayakawa even penned like an, like an apology and statement to represent himself better going forward. But it, it's still something that provide him a genuine career advancement mm. and a part that was full of nuance and interest that he was able to project despite all of the the, the kind of bigotry that is inherent to to the piece yeah. there that sounds really interesting he really stands out so again it's you know even though it was a a vile film in in many regards it was also fascinating and compelling and yeah it's te- technically alluring 
it's that clear reminder that, that that films are not distinctly authored by singular people that therefore they will have elements of interest like that transcend certain other parts and that and that can sort of be a performance and a person that stands out in an otherwise like heinous work there will always yeah. be these little intricate parts especially of like contracts and being like held to studios i'm sure this was the case at the time it's not like a, i chose to be involved in this it's like no this is the studios making the film and they have the contract to you as a star mm-hmm and the other thing that I found really interesting that I noted in my letterbox review for is that I found it fascinating that the kind of the irony that the ultimate legacy of the film is not the racism or the evil inherent to it, but the yeah. success of it for Hayakawa as a performer, you know? So yeah. that is an interesting element in and of itself and that it has managed to kind of rise above the bigotry of the material in terms of what it means today. Mm. Not, and not a means that it absolves it but no, no of course not. It's, it, it is a shame like this is kind of like i don't know arid arid horrible ground from which something grows quite nicely um but you know you wish it were better circumstance for that flourish because it will always kind of like tarnish that flourish and it does it does really suck to have your kind of like meteoric like right i mean i guess my perspective is kind of the opposite in that the it is flourished in spite of the mm. awfulness what what otherwise could be an entirely discardable racist run-of-the-mill film is instead this launching pad for a you know successful lucrative career for a yeah I, I do get that but i feel there is there is a fallacy sometimes um of because it was the thing that did that we credit it as being the thing that did that whereas something else could have done that i mean if there is a performer of like this worth they're going to give that performance at some time and they're going to be given the film and there could have been a different film that gave that so for me it's a shame that it's that moment comes from that work Potentially, it's I don't know. It's a, it's a mm. hard thing to say, particularly yeah, given no, the system sure. that it was in. Like, would another opportunity, a more flattering opportunity, have arisen? I guess in like the case of anime yeah. long here versus Cecilia Hayakawa, True. would that actually have come up? I I I don't know. Um, I don't know, and it is a good thing worth considering. But I still are on that side of it's a. It is a, ultimately for me a shame that it has this good thing has to be tied to this bad thing. Certainly, um, it's a it's a prickly scenario no matter which mm-hmm. way you look at it. But that just that's part of its interest in the the legacy there, which is why I think yeah. as a as a historical study, it was very uh, fruitful and the, sounds really well contextualized, really well contextualized. Yeah. And I think a yeah. film festival is the best way to come across this. I think ed- educational settings and kind of like historical or contextualized settings are the best way to come across very charged, and upsetting material. Mm-hmm. I, I will say that outside of. The, those factors, Hayakawa or the the photography, again, yeah. even, even the the sequence of the the sexual assault sequence, which you know is like really disturbing. It was also kind of the most striking moment in the film, and from a technical standpoint. So there's this mm. m- you know mixed energy there in terms of the what... the irreversible of its time of the like this this scene is utterly heinous, but it's the landmark scene of the film, and there you go. Yeah, it, it was the the scene that affected me the most. So mm. it's you know like well, it was, it's it's very effective. You know, it's. it's good in that sense but yeah uh it's not necessarily a film i would recommend outwardly no it's otherwise. definitely not one and, that i'm going to seek out the other one no I, no i, I, would, I wouldn't the sounds great but this no yeah and again it was interesting more to me as a historical note of like oh i'm very yeah. interested in the trajectory of this japanese american actor and yeah. this is the you know significant point so that that was the reason it was important to me i don't know that anyone else got as much out of it uh, the, the next film after that was one I also knew about, um, kind of more well-known as far as silent films go. Maybe you don't know it, but called Show People by King Vidor. I mean, I know King Vidor, obviously. I know, I know, as uh, I've recommended films of his to you before. Yep, yep, I've seen a King Vidor film, at least one. 
So Show People is one of the earlier Hollywood parodies, I guess we'll say. One of the more okay. cynical Hollywood loves Hollywood movies, you know. And it stars uh, Marion Davies. Yeah, Ma- Marion Davies as this kind of up-and-coming starlet. She's breaking into the movie industry. She's coming from Savannah, mm-hmm. Georgia, and coming into Hollywood to become a big star. And Marion Davies, if you don't remember, is the mistress, the longtime mistress of William Randolph Hearst who obviously most famously was inspiration for one of the characters in Citizen King. But she had a movie career of her own that actually flourished around this time period after she was able to break away from all the kind of froofy dramas that her benefactor was kind of pushing her to be in and to be embraced being a comedian, which she was very gifted at. She was always a big entertainer at uh, the many parties that would host. So this is one of the more kind of self-effacing ones that was very funny and she is such a star in it it's also a big showcase for a lot of the the stars of the time like you get a lot of cameos from the likes of john gilbert and douglas fairbanks there's a short scene where charlie chaplin makes a cameo as himself and oh, cool marion davies doesn't recognize him he's like asking her for a, a signature and she's like who the hell was that guy <laughs> you know so it's like this funny bit that everyone is, is kind of in on so this also, again, interesting is kind of a historical bit of like what the silent era thought of itself, what silent Hollywood thought of itself at the time and mm. its own kind of spin on that. Right at the end. This is right at the end of the silent era here. So is it like the player for the silent era? You know, I, I was going to make that comparison in a review almost exactly. I just didn't want to like, I, I thought that would be kind of silly to do as far as hey, like, hey, a, hey. oh yeah, it's like the player. You know? I'm willing to go for the low-hanging fruit. I'm willing to cheapen it. It's, you know, but it's, yeah, no, it sounds kind of like the player. It sounds kind of like the player. It does. It, it does. There's no like dark story. Like it's not as as cynical in like that sense. It's a little more sincere. It's got a love story thrown in. Maybe you know, maybe for... day for night then. Maybe it's a bit more day for night. Mm-hmm. But it's 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 really funny. There's even, like I said, Marion Davis is really the star. She's got these incredible like facial reactions that are just so cartoonish Mm. uh there's also there's a great scene where she as the character peggy pepper has a run-in with marion davies (laughs) which is maybe like the best cameo in uh, in movies in general (laughs) but that that was very delightful and interesting is like just kind of like a historical snapshot of what the industry looked like at the time a little bit of behind the scenes seeing the camera work seeing how directors operated you know because there wasn't like a lot of yeah. documenting going on of the actual process. So this is one of the kind of chief examples of that that kind of exists. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then becomes this kind of like hyperbolized example that I guess has given more historical credence because we don't know as much. So that's yeah. the ability to mislead. I mean, who knows? Maybe it's very, very truthful. It sounds very, very interesting though. And it's also just really funny, really good. Mm. I definitely would recommend it. And it was, a, it was a great riot, great time. Yeah, and then the last film was our uh, film of the, the week here. Yes. Hold the Sea. The Toll of the Sea, which I... So I watched this on the World Wide Web. I believe you can watch it on the on the Wikipedia page. Um, there is a link to it there. Um, I watched it on YouTube.com, which had your little, like, this has been reissued by blah, blah, blah at the beginning. And this is a really fabulous film. I mean, a fabulous in terms of interesting. I think I have some, some conflicting thoughts about it. But it's really worth watching. I think it's... Yeah, I think it's very fair, but I do think our perceptions of it are going to be Mm. slightly different based on the quality of which we saw it because i saw this at a festival because i saw this with a live orchestra playing and you watched this on youtube.com yeah so so you saw this projected on film you know light bouncing off all the wonder you got the orchestra in front of you yeah you've got a beautiful well looked after print and there i am on youtube.com watching it on my laptop Mm -hmm. so i think that 
will definitely play a factor here. And I, I think, think so. I think I it think definitely it played a factor. It it, you know, it always plays a factor. I think, yeah. and, and that's why it's such a, a big deal, I think, in terms of the restoration and the, you know, the preservation of these films always. Like, yeah. if nothing else, walking away from this festival, I was like, we need to get on top of restoring, preserving mm. a lot more of these films. Like, I mean, for me, it's it's the second step, though, I think. And this needs serious investment because it's not going to be profitable. We need to get better at distribution and the showing of these films. Yeah. Because, um, like, that is as important. Of It's great the restoration work is doing, but I live near two major cities in the UK and have precious little chance to see a silent film. Yeah. I I agree completely. Again, I had to I had to fly out to yeah, see you, all Yeah, you literally these. you literally flew across the country to see his movies. And these are and you know, I'm I'm fortunate enough to have a theater that regularly yeah. shows silent films uh, yes, on, the, on the big yeah. screen. But I I have noticed over the years that they tend to play a lot of the same silent films. I think um, I mean, you know, yeah, you've got, you've got the print that you know works, you've got the musicians that you know can play the thing and you've got the tickets yep. that you know sell. I mean, yeah, it, it it makes fun which is why I think investment investment investment. This is not going to make money, the kind of money it needs to make. This needs to be a cultural effort. Yeah, they, the last couple times in October when they've shown a silent film, I haven't gone because it's been the fan of the opera every time. And I'm like <laughs> I've I've seen this on this here. I know. I know this he's here. Is, yeah, it was like I, and it's wonderful, but like I, I want to see other movies too, you know. So it's and it's always they have to pick the ones that are going to bring people in. So yeah. it's always a Buster Keaton film, or it's a Harold yeah. Lloyd film, or it's Metropolis. You know, like I, I was not going to go see. Nobody was going to go see the Toll of the Sea here if they don't really know about it. As far yeah, as yeah, like, yeah. you, you need like, the there's be twenty people surrounding. Yeah, yeah. Um, you need so, a big promotion for that. Before the title of the sea, then, let's have the conversation about colour, because obviously this is our earliest surviving colour film. So I think we've dispelled two myths already, because when people think about silent film, one, they think about silence, and we've dispelled that. They are not silent. Mm -hmm. And two, they think about black and white. And let's dispel that, because actually, colour is a huge part of the silent film experience. Now, I'm going to refer back to my that great guide I read to silent film that was very much more of a um, technical manual than it was a, an introductory guide. Right. But it was very, very interesting. There's a whole chapter about colour and flesh tones um, called The Way of All Flesh Tones, which was a, a great name for that chapter. Oh, it's a and, great pun. Well, it's the first the first film to win a uh, Best Acting Oscar, which is now lost, mm. The Way of All Flesh. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So... This is why it's so difficult, as they were trying to explain in, in, in this text, of films were often in colour. Not colour as we perhaps perceive it to be now, but were coloured, and they were coloured in different ways, in so many different ways, um, which makes it really, really difficult. So um, you've got some where different frames were cut certain ways, and even talks about how certain colours took on kind of like quantitative meaning of because so many films did this that blue would usually connote that and i've seen this quite a lot of like blue means at night in a quite yep. a lot of silent films so i was watching through the uh, le vampire serial i was like ah it's a blue scene that means it's night so there becomes this own kind of like there is now obviously color psychology never like a, a lot of association with color it's this different kind of like color language of film but that makes restoring it very very difficult because often specific prints are hand colored are colored a different way the dye process of coloring it is often makes it more destructive and then harder to actually Hold on to. So it's very, very difficult to see color films in the same way they were first shown. And you probably, and even the beautiful version that you saw, I bet, is notably different to how it looked when it was first shown. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Especially when it comes to Technicolor, which mm. we'll get to in a, in a second here. But there's, you know, when we think of color in yeah. movies, I think if, if you ask some random person on the street what the what the first color movie is i think almost invariably can i guess they will what they'll tell say you, yeah 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 the wizard of oz 
Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That's 100%, I think, what everyone <laughs> yeah, thinks yeah, yeah. of is the first... Like, you know, it's in black and white for a bit, and then it goes colour, and it's like the train arriving at the station. You're like, whoa, I didn't know I could do this. That's not even that's not even the first Technicolor film. That's not even the first yeah. Technicolor film with that wide of a range. You've mm. got, even just as another example, you've got uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood from just the year before, and you've also got Gone with the Wind at the, the same time there. It's, again, yeah. all these big, lavish, colourful I think just films. people just in their head just think of Wizard of Oz as being a lot older than Gone with the Wind. They think about both being old, but I think they just there's just this kind of like association. Same studio, same yeah, year. Yeah, and yeah. one was much more successful than the other, and it's probably not the one most people think. <laughs> because the Wizard of Oz has just become so ubiquitous. Yeah, but I mean, I, th- I, think, I think we know that Gone with the Wind, though. Like... We, we know, we know, sure, but like... I don't know if, you know... I mean, what, one deserves to be a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Because <laughs> Wizard of Oz is, is a masterpiece, and Gone with the Wind is Gone with the Wind. Mm. Um, was talking about that film at work today. Mm. Mm. It's, it's interesting how it keeps coming up still. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, it's because it was... I walked into a lesson about Streetcar Named Desire, so they're talking about how the, the myth of the South was created, yeah, and how texts yeah. like Gone with the Wind, both in its novel form and then in its filmic form, were key to the revisionist history of the South. Um, Perpetuate the romanticism yes. of that, yeah. Certainly, the same same actress too, Vivian Lee, both roles. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. Again, the star. You know, you have your stars in your studio. So, Technicolor. Then. So, color and Technicolor. Explain to me as if I know nothing. Well, color and film. I guess to go back further. Again, we we, we keep yeah. talking about it on film, but it really has existed since the start, since the beginning. Yeah. We've, we kind of touched on tinting. You know, when yes. it comes to doing like blue scenes for night, or when they do like a lot of reds or big orange, a lot of yellows to create I've seen. heat. Like like if you're doing like a desert shot for like a western yeah. or something, so them do that. Uh, I can think of using a deep red. I've seen for like whenever there's like a big fire scene. Sometimes mm-hmm. you know they have a big fire set piece and they just tint the whole scene red, and it gives it that extra dimension for it. But I mean, this color precedes that even as far back as like the early 1900s, like the like the very very first films and stuff. You know, kind of most famously some of the George Melies films. I was about to say we're going to mention our favorite, our favorite. Color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was our favorite. I mean, our favorite movie magician is going to keep coming back up. It's why. The Many Forks of Satan was like is such a landmark like film for me when watching it because I was just like I did not know you could do. I was like this this came out when and it's in the most beautiful color and it yeah. is so lavish and wonderful. So yeah, this but that's that's hand hand colored, isn't it? That yeah, is like frame colored. by was, frame hand colored. So you can't keep that, doing that. Every single it was every single print that was made had to be yeah. hand colored. Not just the film itself, and then you would make dupes of that. Every single print that Melies made. So you can get color then, but like that's an unsustainable process. We need something like the printing press, don't we? So at this stage, you've you, you've got something you can hand press your manuscripts. But we are waiting for Gutenberg. We are waiting for the printing press to make color into a process that can be spread and universalized. Mm-hmm. So eventually, they would go on to develop the techniques like tinting, where they would be able to dye the film itself yeah. into just single shades of color like the whole yeah. you know sequence would be colored a particular way and that became a very nice shorthand for expression of emotions or environment uh, scenery all kinds of things and you know again you could see it in restored colors like i was mentioning it with forbidden paradise like a lot of the film is sepia toned for like mm. a lot of the daytime scenes and then blue for night and there's this very clear contrast going on and it's very beautiful it's very vivid in its own right but uh sometime 
along the way, th there was a kind of wave in restoration work where they wanted to make the films more pure in their presentation. Yeah. So deliberately taking color out of films that had it and just, mm. you know, shoving out these single black and white films or these just kind of all sepia as just a more cheap process to make it all uniform like that. And that was a very destructive trend in terms yeah. of, as far as preservation of these films went. Though actually, I think if we're talking about color in a silent film, I think maybe the first time when I was struck by this was I saw an article before I really knew what it was about a reissue, God knows when, of Napoleon, or it may have been like a, 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 a one of the many reissues it had, and just saw some some stills of that, and I was like, what? Why is this purple? I thought this was an old film, and then obviously this year watching Napoleon, you've got that that trickler effect. So yeah, the the, the use of color in silent film is outlandish and, and just like grand and wonderful i think it's something that we appreciate more because so, you don't think about mm. it the same process didn't transfer over to talkies i guess for mm. instance and i think that has to do with the inherent i guess uh, obscuring or expressive nature of silent film versus when things became more grounded yeah. with the introduction of dialogue and the the techniques and the language of cinema became you know more invisible so to speak so one of the things that was lost in the process there was the idea of coloring yeah. when it came to film. And, and and to me, this era is like, and this is the same for Technicolor as well, of color as an expressive tool, which when, in the same way that when talking becomes the default, you use a lot, you lose a lot of the expressive language of silent film. And when color becomes a default, you lose a lot of the, I'm using color for a reason. And then there are few films even now the outside of like it has a color palette it's really inventively and brilliantly used color um I, I mean to think about like my highlights it definitely goes back to the archers so pal and pressburger definitely with their use of color jacques demy obviously douglas sirk obviously and i don't know if you've seen any antonioni um but antonioni's yes. red desert which uses color to present colorlessness in the most like intelligent and brilliant way of being like, oh, this is his color film, and it's all brown and gray and horrible. So it, it makes you realize how there is a lack of color using color. So that, that that's the stuff that I adore. And actually, Toll of the Sea does a bit of that. We'll talk about that about the suits. I love the suits in that film, of how mm -hmm. how a suit says so much at one point. I have a statistic here, actually, I found in my research from filmpreservation.org. Uh, they estimated that by the 1920s, more than 80% of U.S. feature films were artificially colored by less intense uh, labor-intensive processes that added uniform wow. tints to certain sequences. So more than 80% of U.S. films were colored in some way or another. And we definitely see it as being, and there was black and white, and then suddenly there was yeah. color. <laughs> um, yeah. When those, those shoes tap together and we go into Oz, suddenly color was born. Can can you muse for me? I, I'm kind of curious mm. for a second. Where this stigma towards black and white kind of stems from for your typical person? Because black and white, I think, has been the legacy yeah. of cinema longer than color has predominantly. I, I get this. I mean, working with children, I think, and I think we've all been through this, is that impulse of you you want to live in your now and you want to think that you're very, very present and things before you are somewhat irrelevant. And there, there is a positive element to that of like, you know, progressing forwards. But there is this stigmatization of things that are old. And that is like a clear shibboleth for this thing is old. This is very, very old. The conversation I have about film with students, and these are students that are like 17 or 18 years old. And what they talk about being old, I'm like, that's not old. That's younger than me. What are you talking about? You talk mm -hmm. about like a film from the 90s, early 2000s. They're like, I'm not watching that. That's old. I'm like, what are you talking about? So therefore, black and white is just so 
it's prehistoric, isn't it? It, it, it definitely yeah. it has a, a prehistoric connotation of being like, people have a weird relationship with what they perceive to be realism. I remember, this is a weird analogy, but I remember being in my second year of university and I was very, very excited that um, a new Halo game was coming out. It was Halo 4. Um, and I was talking to a random person outside a lecture and the person went, oh, I don't like Halo. I was like, oh, I really like Halo. He goes, that's just not realistic enough. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, that's why I like Call of Duty. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, there's this strange fascination with like the aesthetic of realism, even if it's like, there's no realism there. What? What? But I think that does pervade of it's just seen as like stuffy, old, outdated and false. I do think that's a very interesting point because that definitely will tie in with our uh, the kind of advancement of Technicolor, the strive to create a better sense of realism yeah. in, in film, certainly. Uh, so yeah, I see that. But I, I find it interesting as a thing because it is definitely something that I feel like generation after generation grapples with. I know I had a stigma I had, towards I had, black I and had... white. Door black and white film. I know. I, 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 right I can't now. remember not enjoying it. I think that's because I was, I was brought up watching older things, even though just like televisual. I wasn't brought up watching a lot of old film, but like, and also I remember. Oh, I know why. Because I had a TV that was just black and white. There was yeah. like a like there was a TV in our house that was a black and white TV. So therefore, I was like, you just watch black and white on it. The fun story in my household is my auntie Haley. The reason she got a color TV when they're growing up is because she loved snooker and she was fed up of watching the snooker on the black and white TV because she couldn't tell what the balls were. Um, so there you go. That's funny. Black and white is the best. I absolutely adore it. I agree, but so is color, and especially yes, yeah, yeah, especially Technicolor. Technicolor okay. is sell a me on this Technicolor idea. Very particular kind of color when it comes to film, but and and it was so impactful that the word itself has entered the lexicon mm. to just mean vibrant, you know, in terms of things. Like, when you search Technicolor up in a, in yeah. a dictionary, you're going to get two definitions. And one, the first one is usually, like, the, you know, actual process, the trademark process of color development yeah. named for the the university its inventors both attended and later taught at. It's named after the, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. It's named after MRT, which is interesting trivia for you. But the second definition is usually a colloquial term a kind of broad descriptor for vivid colors and it's most defined by a lot of the lavish hollywood productions of the 40s and 50s that utilize technicolor to very brilliant effect and this is usually what we think of as the three strip technicolor process you know you're very vivid like the the cirque films he gave an example or mm. you know as it's kind of the primary one people go with but that was by no means the first iteration of technicolor it was just the most prominent one that kind of came along. It was a process that had been being developed since the late 19-teens. So the process gets its name by the means through which the rendering of color is achieved. Okay. For three-strip, we call it, is because three strips of black and white film were simultaneously exposed through a beam splitter, which sent yeah. a third of the light through a green filter, and then the yes. other two-thirds through a magenta filler, which recorded the red and blue lights onto the two other pieces of so this is this so this is color separation so you won't have seen because i mean very few have ben rivers is film now at last which is one of my favorite movies but it's not for most people which is a it's known most of us as the 40 minute sloth film it's 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 40 <laughs> minutes long and you watch a sloth called cherry move along a branch and it's, it's, it's beautiful slow cinema i love slow cinema but halfway through as a way of approximating what he calls sloth time he um <laughs> 
Unchained Melody from the Righteous Brothers starts playing and then Colour Separation. So I think it's, it's very much because the film is about time and how slow cinema is about time and therefore that's why it's in nature about how time seems to go more slowly in nature. So the sloth starts to colour separate out and it plays Unchained Melody and it's just this like wonderful filmic moment. You're like, ah, this is really, really cool. So that's that's that's, that's where I know Colour Separation from, from the wonderful mm-hmm. Ben Rivers movie, Now at Last, which is a little, a little masterpiece. Yeah, I guess for the listeners going forward, this is going to be a very technical explanation of things. I did a lot of research to try and understand so that I can mm. explain how this happens because it was yeah. it was important to kind of distinguish how this technique actually yeah. came came to be so so prominent and so influential. So before three strip, obviously they had another one which we call in hindsight two strip Technicolor, but okay. uh, it was it's never really like that. Again, that was kind of a post name like anything else. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So. They, they first started developing this process for a two-color system uh, in the late 19-teens, like I said, but still using the beam splitter process that was used for, for later Technicolors, but it was exposed on two consecutive frames of a single piece of film with red and green chosen as to best approximate skin that tone. That makes sense for this were. movie. Yeah. So the way it was done, though, in the first time, only one film was made with the first two-strip Technicolor attempt process and it was a 1917 film called the gulf between we got a few frames of it that survive but it was largely considered a dud a doomed failure okay. so much so that on the toll of the sea it was kind of not taken seriously by a lot of the actors of the production because oh, wow. a lot of a lot of testing people have been playing with the idea of color and film for decades now at this point and it always yeah. to mixed successes at best if not complete failures and this was one of them one of those uh, failures because uh, it was very impractical to show the film because it was done as an additive process. Basically, what they did is through a special projector, they would run the two strips of film simultaneously, the red one, the red-tinted one, and the green one, and they would have to oh. align it on the screen. And it was called... So this is an additive color Yeah, I did, I, did, I did read about this in the book of, like, the difficulty of showcasing some color film is that it was the apparatus that added to it to make it color as well. And then how do you recreate that? going yeah. forwards mm. so it was it was very cumbersome they the film had to be run at twice normal speed because you know you had two strips that were yeah. you know being exposed so to keep up with that and a projectionist need to be constantly adjusting the image and keeping trying to keep the two projections God. in focus and so it was just a big hassle and yeah. practical and you needed the special equipment for it it was obviously never going to really work yeah we talk about this at, at, at work obviously and when i'm teaching english language of the if you want things to catch on even like as linguistic habits come up, catch on they need to be accessible and easy and within reach if it is going to be onerous to get done it will get done and be impressive but it won't get done again mm-hmm. so they went back to the drawing board to try and figure out a way to make it more accessible and mm. more uh, applicable easier to get yeah so once again, they're doing the same process, beam splitter, two different colors, red and green, being exposed through the filters at the same time. But the difference this time is that the colored frames were printed on two different strips of film Okay. instead of just combined later. So afterwards, they would cement the prints together to one single piece of film, and they would then dye each side with a corresponding tone. Uh. So for the red exposed side, they were... The, uh, tinted a green to kind of balance it out and vice yeah. versa with the green one being more of an orange or, or red to create it there. So this was called a subtractive process. So what it, the, the tint was doing was taking out the harsher elements. It was balancing it out essentially with this like just perfect complementary color scheme. And that would create the 
perfect approximation of the, the vision that, that we see. So the largest benefit of the subtractive process was that it could be projected regardless because it was all on the yeah. film. All you just do would show light through it, work through any kind of projector, as opposed to needing the additive one with the two different projections coming up. Uh, the big issue, though, is that that still came with it is that it was very expensive because it cost twice as much just from, yeah. just from a film it's, standpoint. It's, it's the color range you get from this because we're talking, and, and forgive me if this is a ridiculous question, because we're talking red and green. Is this a very limited color spectrum that you can get from this in general then? Uh, I mean, based on the results I've seen from from the film, I would say it's actually quite remarkable the okay. kind of range you can get. Really, like you're you're, you're missing your your blue tones primarily yeah. here, but a lot of that is it can still be filled in. It's because uh, I am struck by the Tolosee is the primary colors used, as in like the colors used primarily are red and green, and it it does a great job of like the the contrast between those. It has this motif of like flowering red flowers with the green yeah. kind of like foliage around them. Um, so it seems like it's very much taking advantage of at least what the color spectrum lends itself best to. Certainly, yeah. The the production design for the film definitely factored that that in. It seems like it's a, sh- yeah. a sh- showpiece with technology of being like, look, this is what it does best. Right, but but they specifically chose red and green as the filtered mm. colors because it was going to be the best for capturing human Interesting. you know, color and also just the, the, the widest spectrum well, of combination. The, they the, could the get. kind of humans they wanted yeah. to have color for. That, that, <laughs> is, that is definitely an important note there to add on yes. to that, that it was... Yeah, C- color film was specifically designed with a particular tone of human. There's there's a really good quote from Jean-Luc Godard about um, he refused to use, I don't know if it was Kodak or not, and I should remember, he refused to use a certain color print for one of his films, and he wrote a letter back because he just said it's racist. He's like, I'm not using this color print because of the way it works with certain skin tones. I'm not using your racist film, and like published mm-hmm. that as an open letter. So yeah, there's worth looking into, dear listener, of the history of color film and when you had to these these elements in this way, um, which is obviously very pre-digital, of how it represented certain people, or didn't represent, or distorted certain people. I do. It is kind of interesting, though, that the first example of a you know two-strip Technicolor film was designed you know with with an Asian cast in mind. Then, which is interesting for me, and I will talk about this more. But I think does link into the Orientalism of this film of yeah. it's as exotic object and how do we show our exotic object well we show the, the the mystical east is the idea here and look at look at it in its sumptuous kind of like technical glory 100 percent a motivation for yeah. this particular script here it says I've, I've got some of my information is going off of mm. the booklet that was provided some of the essays written here and one of them states that the, the screenwriter francis marion was brought in to write a scenario that would best exploit the variable color tones and she so specifically chose a rich and sumptuous oriental background as a setting. I mean, it the... says in one of the opening ins titles, it refers to it as faraway China, which de- definitely does set up this idea of the other and the exotic other, which the film is very mm-hmm. much about. Right. Not as perniciously as it could have been. I, I do like this film, yeah. but it is, um, it is rife with issue. Yeah. Let, let me read it back for a sec just to get uh, you know more of the, the color conversation mm. here in. Which is the that, color commentary. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so... One of the other issues, of course, with this early color film is that it's far more prone to warping and distortion thanks to the delicacy of the cemented strips because it's not just a single piece. It's two films, two actually thinner pieces of film so that it would still run through the projector properly, like about half as thick as you would a normal piece because it had to be glued together. Another issue was the, the drainage of color over time, in particular the green would run out, uh, would fade faster than reds were. So you can see in 
some surviving Technicolor sequences. One I can think of off the top of my head is the opening of Buster Keaton's Seven Chances, which did a lot of experimenting with Technicolor. It's okay. very orange. It's very orange for the uh, it's there, and that's because of the fading that's happened over time, as opposed to a beautifully kept film like The Toll of the Sea here, which is largely yeah. still prominent in both its red and green hues. But it was a semi-popular process that was used in various capacities throughout the, the late 20s, you know, kind of the, the tail end of the silent era mm. there, from small sequences that are still iconic today to, like, the Masquerade Ball and the Phantom of the Opera to full-fledged features like The Toll of the Sea or yeah. perhaps more recognizably Douglas Fairbanks's The Black Pirate. Okay. It's all done in color. So, yeah, that's a kind of brief history of the development so, I mean, of the really, really fascinating. And, and that leads us to this evidently beautiful film, The Toll of the Sea. And what I was reminded of straight away, and we will step what this film is about, because I think that is, is very worthwhile, but the way that this film so commits to colour that you even have the capital letters on the kind of like the opening credits of that of like red text around it of being like, no, look, mm-hmm. it is colour and colour can do this. I mean, again, the boss baby vibes of this, of, you know, personal as anything else, but it is very dosirk to me of the idea of like the way that it is using colour as this kind of like beautiful device that makes it feel luxurious. It feels like a luxurious work which is what I associate with that kind of, like, period of Hollywood. Well, and I think the main reason for that and why it feels so central about the, the mm. colors of Showcase is because that's the inception for the film. This was yeah. not a, a yeah. director looking to tell a story, a screenwriter having something. Uh, I, I literally have a quote here from a 1922 advertisement that's declared the inspiration for it didn't come from a director or screenwriter, but from two great scientists. So this was a film produced by Technicolor to showcase Technicolor as a so what, viable what, what you're saying is that this is Gears of War. <laughs> In the same way that the Unreal, the video game developers, well, Epic, sorry, Epic, who make the Unreal Engine, made Gears of War as a way of showing off his what the Unreal Engine could do and was like, oh, this Gears of War game is pretty damn good, but it exists there to sell the Unreal Engine. This piece of art exists to show off Technicolor. It's Gears of War. Yeah, I guess that is this is a very apt modern comparison hmm. in terms of the, the, the inception behind this piece of art. Yeah. It is ultimately a marketing device at the end of the day, but a bold and fascinating and striking one still. It was uh, yeah, it was just produced by Technicolor, and yeah. then uh, Metro came in and decided to distribute the film. So that's how yeah. it was made out. But otherwise, like all of the financing came from Technicolor, from raising for it to, to make it happen. Yeah. And I noticed the distinction right away because uh, some of the examples I gave earlier of other two-strip Technicolor films I've seen a number of times I've okay. been impressed by. But when this film started, I immediately was struck by just how much more vibrant and lifelike it appeared. I mean, I mean so me too. Ways. And I'm not, I'm not like, I don't have the amount of like reference points to you, but I thought just the, the color was sumptuous. I mean, in my notes, I've referred to it as it, it very much, and this is because of the art design, the production design, it looks like an impressionist painting. It is very much like Monet and the Water Lees. Um, it is, it is this really beautiful, like the color depth and the specific edges of the color and the way that colors in of others, it feels so intentional, so purposeful. And it, it, it feels painterly in that way that I have not seen films from 1922 that feel painterly in that way. Um, it's it's a remarkably beautiful work. That's something to point out. This film is a hundred years old. A hundred years now. old. Yep, this is the hundredth year anniversary of this film. And yeah, it, and it looks still like one of the most incredible looking yeah, it's, films it's, I've it's, ever it's... seen from any era. It is, it is stunning, and I, obviously it looked better in, in your showing. Um, uh, yeah. 
I, I but yeah, sc- scrubbing looks, through the looks, YouTube looks clips. Looks good on YouTube. Yeah, but yeah, I was I was definitely noticing different stuff, which is why I'm like, God, this needs a, a better distribution now. Come on, can we yeah. please get a, a 4K and release of this or something? Speaking of distribution, this was lost then. So when was it found? <laughs> that is a very interesting question and one that I had had much trouble locating. And uh, okay. a little bit of uh, I tried to dig a little bit more last night before our discussion here, but this is that's, this is the that's interesting. That's the C for you. The C, you know, the interesting no results. So all all reputable sources I've found from this, everything I've looked yeah. at from Wikipedia to the film itself to the restoration states at the yeah. beginning that this was once a lost film, but nobody seems to be willing to declare when it was lost how or when it was found something nefarious then it's because it is i often think of was the way it was found a story they don't want to talk about is this like someone that doesn't want to mention about how they had it or why they have yeah Mm -hmm. the only information states that it was lost and then it was restored in 1985 by the UCLA, <laughs> UCLA Film Archive from a mostly surviving original camera negative. It was and, lost, yeah. apart from the original camera negative that we had. Yeah, <laughs> okay. and that's that's why, like, leading up to this, I'm like, <laughs> is this a film we can even cover? Is this a lost film? But, again, like, I, I felt comfort yeah. when I sat to watch the film. And even the film itself is saying, this film was lost. It, d- it definitely was. I'm like, all right, well, I guess it counts hey, if, then. If but... you say it enough, it becomes <laughs> the truth. Um, okay, interesting. So what is the film now? Yeah. What, is, what is the well, tour of the scene? Well, hold on. Because okay. I, sorry, did find, sorry. I did find a little bit more information. <gasps> Last night, I the found... Information, I, the information was lost, and you have found it. I found a nugget. I found a tiny lead that may have brought me to somewhere. So I, I have to state this because it just it, okay. it brought me somewhere. But I don't know. The IMDb trivia section. Oh God! Is okay. Only I downvote place this is useless. I downvote this. Is, is, is not the helpful. only place. It was. It was listed. They said that it was apparently lost in the 1967 MGM oh, vault fire. And I was like, that's interesting that you state that. I, I don't know that I believe it necessarily, yes. but that's that's a starting point. Citation, I please. Can... Citation, please. Um... So so I started looking into it, and I just want to describe because it was a bit of a rabbit hole last night. So the first thing I do is I Google 1967 MGM Vault Fire. I'm like, maybe, you know, there's a list somewhere, and it's just like, oh, here's some of the films we know that were okay, lost yeah, there. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And uh, already I get a little confused because the first results bring up the 1965 MGM Vault Fire. Classic. And I'm like, hmm, that's, that's very close. And so I look into information I can find both. It's mostly about 1965 that one comes up, but little bits here and there of 1967. Both broke out due to an electrical issue in Vault 7. Yeah. I'm like, that's really suspicious. We, we need to work we... on Vault 7, yeah. <laughs> yeah, either, either there's an issue there or somebody mixed up some dates and it's just one Vault fire, probably. Mm, yeah, or it lasted for two years. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I, I, I had to do a lot of digging. I found like a forum that was like, and, and this seems to be a pretty active debate as to what <laughs> is fire is, because this is, this is like the famous one. This is the fire that apparently destroyed the Lon Chaney film London After Midnight, which is one oh, okay. of the most yeah. sought after lost silent films. But the, the more I dug, the more I found that everyone who refers, refers to the 65 fire states the same three films is specifically being lost. It's okay. London After Midnight, yeah. The Divine Woman and another Cheney film that I'm missing in my notes here. Anyway, always those three films. So I'm like, track down the source of it. It's from this particular essay that appeared in a, a film history magazine. And so I'm like, ah, this is just not leading me to anywhere conclusive. It just shows how much there is not a lot of record keeping in terms of this 
stuff, uh, you know, the, in terms of what happened, what was lost, so that when everyone talks about this specific fire, this big deal, it all seems to connect back to the single source that, that talked yeah. about it and gave these very specific films. So I don't know where this person thought the toll of the sea came in there. I can see where it might've been because like I said, it was a, it was a Metro. I can't believe you, film. You, you've spent this much looking up a random piece of Vine of which I was, just going, I, was nope. I was so, I was like, <laughs> I got to find out where it just, it, it, and it just kept again, like the contradictory information just kept pulling me further in. There was like a message board I saw, found where someone has found like a, a corresponding fire that happened in universal, yeah. like this two days, a, allegedly a, a wholesome after. internet rabbit hole to go down. The people in like <laughs> weird alt-right, rabbit holes the internet and at least you're looking up where was this silent film lost and in which fire <laughs> i was trying to figure because i, I, I yeah. found the information and there was no information otherwise i was really struck when trying to research the film i was like everyone's sure it was lost but they don't know how or when or even when it wonderful. was found they just know that wonderful, it wonderful. was restored at this time period <laughs> like well there you go we, we 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 talked about it so what is the film then david so the toll of the sea like i said <laughs> is the second ever technicolor film the first yes. that did not require any exterior protective, and the oldest surviving as well. And it is essentially a Chinese set telling yeah. of the Madame Butterfly story. Very, yeah, a, a shortened, compressed version. Yes, yeah, but hits the notes you expect, like like way more, way more specifically than I thought that it would. Like I was, I was thinking it was going to be more like inspired by. It's like, nope, this is, yep, yeah, this is that, 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 bam. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty significant nowadays not just for its technical thing but for being a big launching vehicle for chinese american actress anna may wong who has become a particular darling of early hollywood especially mm. the uh, silent period where she had a lot of significant contributions and and stand-up performances and this is i think one of her best showcases in terms of this huge potential as an actress that was often she's very young in this isn't she she is 17 yeah in this movie. This was a very early role for her. And this is, yeah, kind of what really brought her in, into prominence very quickly thereafter. She's very, very good. She's very, very, very good. I do have reservations about the film as a whole. To to start with reference points, I was actually quite reminded at points, and I mean this as, as praise, I think it's a wonderful film, of, of um, Lean's Brief Encounter. There is a kind of like... Great film. Yeah. Stifled, a stifled, like, feverish, but polite and repressed romanticism to the film i think it captures beautifully i think it's just like when i think of brief encounter i think of two people filmed in close-up like gripping onto each other and holding themselves romantically in a frame and i feel that this has that and it's such a beautiful kind of shot let's see coming back to it, it, it is a very positive comparison there this film feels like a storybook like a beautifully illustrated perhaps illuminated manuscript that is just like wonderful to go through and the archetypal story links back to that it's a very simple story that goes where you expect Trades in stereotype, yes, but is beautifully told and beautifully acted. I think she is wonderful in it and mm -hmm. definitely lights up the screen. The colour's really effective. I referred to this earlier, but there's a really lovely bit of the white suits of the men, the American men at the beginning is such this great absence of colour. I know that white is the totality of colour, but the absence of colour in the, the green and red around. And there's this lovely moment towards the end when the husband returns and he's wearing a grey suit now. And that, it reminded me of Agnes Varda's Le Bonheur, one of my all-time favourite films. I think the best film from the best filmmaker of all time. Where that film uses colours of storytelling. Of it, it, it follows the seasons. And there's a moment of like, 
presented happiness in narrative, but sadness for the viewer that it shows by autumnal colours taking over. And I was reminded of that here of the white purity, hope and dream of those suits that meant something at the beginning. Now this grey business-like suit. That's a thing that you couldn't do without colour film. And that, that is such a justifying moment for me. I mean, like, oh, wow. That's wonderful. It's such a great convention of the visual medium as well. Uh, the storytelling is predominantly for silent film. And uh, again, another showcase for how the medium still had potential to grow in its techniques, in its uh, communicative properties that just halted when sound just completely took over and changed everything. And that was something that struck me watching the film that, that didn't occur till about like halfway through is how modern feeling it came across in terms of the techniques on display because the producers were hope looking to achieve something so much more lifelike and realistic the con the typical conventions of silent film storytelling are largely foregone here like they they don't do any real trick photography or any kind of shorthand techniques you don't see like the irisins to accent things or anything like that it's a lot more of a fluid invisible kind of storytelling that takes place and to a point where it almost felt like i was not watching a silent film until the intertitles would pop up again and remind me of the kind of storytelling that was taking place here I hadn't thought about that actually yes you're right it, it feels like a very of the kind of filmmaking that I like of that reserved retreats to the back camera and lets things happen in the mise-en-scene very in a very curated artistic way of like let, let's let the beauty unfurl in, in the screen and that's the kind of filmmaking that I enjoy in general so I, this is a very easy film to watch for a modern viewer yeah and is is really really lovely. It, it, it is romantic to a fault because the things it's romanticizing are perhaps things that should not be romanticized I think it is good, again, but it is still a naive... Even if it is an empathetic work towards someone, it is naively empathetic and definitively exoticized and links into a supremacist portrayal of, yes, it is ultimately shown that, you know, the man, I guess, is bad for having misled the woman, but it is definitely the whole way of this thing to look up to, this, like this being to aspire to that one presents lesser than. And I think that you brought up, I want to have a conversation about, because it's very interesting, about intertitles and and the way that things are phrased here. So a perennial difficulty in communication. And it's more complex than I think... I, I think your criticism is apt, but there is a complexity mm -hmm. here because spoken language and written language are fundamentally completely different. Completely different. Um, Absolutely. You cannot yep. approximate what is spoken, what is written. Therefore, we often attempt to. So to give it like a very accessible example, a very known example. So Irvin Welsh's novel, Trainspotting, famously adapted into the Danny Boyle film, is written in Scots dialect. So it's written in phonetic Scottish. So you read it in that way and it's supposed to approximate in that way. This film wants you to know there is a there is a cultural difference. Um, and there, there are films that play with this. I know Park Chan-wook's The Handmaiden mixes between, I think, Korean and Japanese. And right. me watching it, I don't know when different things are being spoken. But Park Chan-wook has talked about how you can tell like the truth values of certain statements based on what language is being used, which is really, really interesting. There is actually a pretty interesting difference in The Handmaiden in particular for Western releases. These mm. subtitles are colored differently for the different oh, languages. Oh, cool. Well, they so smart. it's like, I think it's yellow for Japanese text and then white for the Korean uh, or 
vice versa. I'm not exactly so, sure, but so, I remember that. So they go, that's a really smart way of, of, of doing that then. Because what this goes for is it wants to... So I've read a lot about accents. There's a really great book by American linguist Rosina, uh, Rosina Green called English with an Accent. And she starts with this idea that everyone knows what an accent is. But if you try to define an accent, you can't. There isn't like accents don't actually exist. You can't actually define them. It's a bunch of weird like linguistic habits. Um, but we know they exist. But they're not real per se. And this idea of like strong and weak accents is a false because that implies a default. Um, this film wants to imply accent through writing, which you can't do. You generally can't do. So therefore, it goes down to dialect, and you often really can't get dialect through writing either. So what it goes for is a simplified syntactically warped form of English in order to show difference. I understand the issue they have here, but I also think it speaks of the ability that silent film has to project a way of speaking onto somebody and to rob them of their voice. Because mm-hmm. when you read something, you give voice to that actor, and obviously made into humour and singing in the rain, but that is not their voice. And this makes you appropriate and push a voice onto an actor that is very stereotypical and very uncomfortable in the way that it is mangled and what is seen as non-standard English. I'll say in this case, it's not like... It's not horrendous. No, it's not. Yeah, but but very clearly, and I think this is a an issue you will find in any sense, because ba- mm. fundamentally what it is is that it's a translation of yeah. a physical performance into words that just simply aren't necessarily there and there's so there's a certain amount of interpretation that the yeah. person who is writing the intertitles is projecting onto the performance that i think there's a direct dissonance in this particular case there are definitely cases where creating a dialect yeah. through the writing to Which, enhance a sense of character within our gates does that it's very nice exactly yeah. what i was going to go to but that's also another interesting example of how it is interpreted so much down the line because if you recall that was a film that was discovered in a Spanish print. Yes. So the, the intertitles were not the original intertitles surviving from Michaud. What they did was that they translated it from Spanish back into English and then used the context of the dialect and the ways yeah. he would write phonetically the, the black dialogue from his other surviving works in his books and his mm. other films to kind of guesstimate what yeah. they would be for that the key difference then isn't it of there's writing from within a community and within a social group and then there is transposing a writing onto the kind of like who becomes the symbol for a nationality mm-hmm. and a community and a social group and it's definitely much placing a voice onto a character as opposed to trying to show a voice naturally through and, and again it, it is difficult and i think i mean maybe there's a lack of like trust in audiences i think that if you just wrote it as it is dialogue I think the audience has an ability to understand those things. And there is a little, there is a bit of condescension outside of the obvious discomfort of representing someone with simplified syntax, which therefore represents them as simplified. And it is such an unsimple performance. It is such a, a performance that's really assured, really kind of like there is grandeur to it and there is intelligence to it that is betrayed mm-hmm. by the simplicity of the syntax. I think you write about it quite beautifully in your review. Yeah, I think ultimately the the issue more so than the kind of mm. stereotyping of the character through dialogue is that it's just a really poor dialogue yeah. for yes. what the character is portraying. Like I think fundamentally that's the greater hurdle is that it's, she's infantilized it's so, like, by this she is deeply i mean i know that she's 17 she's a child but her dialogue feels so lesser than the character and the emotions presented on screen i just think it comes back, it's, it's just bad writing in, in general it's just so like like <laughs> straightforward so yeah. kind of like explicit and and i said simplified dumbed down 
to an extent that even uh, outside of the stereotyping that it's doing, yeah. it's it just very poor dialogue that's being written, poor intertitle writing. I agree. I agree. In, in general. And, and that only worsens the, yes. the, the stereotyping that's going on there is is the big issue if you had a better writer going on here for the intertitles and you know it's not to say that francis marion one of the you know most in-demand writers at the time was a a poor writer but in this case it's just very bad work in in mm. my opinion for giving the characterization there to to a point where i was uncomfortably reacting back and forth when the intertitles would interrupt this beautiful and nuanced performance that was being rendered and kind of just like hackneedly delivering these very you know pithy kind of interpretations yeah it's it's it's, it is a shame because i think there is such there's such a visual and poetic beauty to this film and there is such a a cinematic sense to it that those just less than stellar edges are a bit eh and i guess you feel worse about it because you expect less of a film Mm. like this from 1922 particularly when it's trying to tell a story about a chinese character and a cast of chinese characters at that yeah in a time period when yellow face was the predominant means by which those stories were told and so when comes along a film that is more genuinely you know representational and has a cast that's full of chinese actors who are given real characters to work with and real opportunities that aren't being forced into stereotypical parts when it does fall back on those orientalism conventions it it just feels all the worse because it's like you've, you've been doing so well up until yeah. now you know it, it presenting something real and genuine and even universal seeming like because yeah. those are the the senses i get from lotus flowers character the character anime wong plays here is that her mm. plight is not inherently a, a Chinese-centric one. It is one that feels so much more... Yeah, it's about, about longing and distance and mm-hmm. people changing and getting left behind them. It plays with very simplified and very kind of like, because it is a short film of a very simplistic story, but some really kind of like perennial and interesting and resonant themes. Yeah, again, as the refrain keeps being, very glad to have watched this i thought it was very very interesting obviously certain people will gain great discomfort from parts of it i mean speaking from myself and my privileged position i was not like made to feel deeper comfortable by it i noted bits of it being objectionable and i was able to come away with a, an ultimately positive viewpoint that is a reflection of the lens which i'm able to view the film from but yeah i i, I reacted very positively to it i thought it was a very beautiful very luxuriant reserved resident and sensual work um and i think the simplicity of the storytelling is completely elevated by on-screen artistry and it is a great showpiece for this is what color can do and it really justifies it yeah i I think it's magnificent like i was i was so awed by it Mm. in in the theater seeing visuals impressed by what i thought i was already familiar with as far as a convention of the era and it really made me readjust what i could consider that the the era still had capacity for to showcase in terms of innovation and artistry there's still left i was i was slightly let down by uh yeah. how the film kind of ends it, it is oh yes that, it... that is it is it is quite crass and again it does the in a film of exoticization and romanticism romanticization we have a romanticization of death by suicide that is yeah which is something the, that's yeah inherent to the material that you're, you're dealing with there that has to be grappled with in and of itself but 
the way the film presents it is kind of the more frustrating element to me because for what is up until then a very sympathetic story mm. to uh, the case of Lotus Flower, it seems to revel in the tragedy of yeah, it. It kind of it, takes a step back. It, I feel it like, makes her life. feel a bit disposable and as a narrative object that is thrown off right, at the like, end. It shifts from because whereas this whole time we've been with her and sympathizing with her and seeing her perspective, now suddenly we're, we're abstracted yeah. from that and it's like, oh, now she's this vessel for yes. tragedy. Yes, that's a, for the an film. excellent way of putting it. Yeah, it very much is. It goes from being her film and her performance to I mean, it's it's very much to use a ridiculous reference of the Andy Pucci died on his way back to his home planet idea at the end. <laughs> uh, what a comparison. Yeah, I, you know, it's hey, if it works, it works. <laughs> I wonder if we had the final reel, if that would feel differently. Mm. That was something I was thinking about. Because it is slightly incomplete. The last okay. reel did not survive. And when they restored the film in 1985, they took an actual two-color Technicolor camera and they shot some footage. Oh, of wow. I didn't know that. That's incredible. Yeah, and in the sunset at the end. So yeah, so that the final shots of the film are made in, like decades later in 1985. I I noticed it because I knew about that going in, and I could tell yeah. the difference just in the fidelity of of the the waves. Uh, it was very different. I guess I was just being like, this restoration is great. I guess <laughs> because I mean, I mean, yeah, I'm, used, yeah. <laughs> I'm used to things. I'm used to inconsistent restorations. I'm used to certain bits just being better than than other bits. I also saw it on a giant canvas screen. Yeah. You saw it, I assume, on a computer screen. So yep. perhaps the compression there changed that. And to actually link to the same film twice in one episode, uh, every time I see water and rocks, I'm like, oh yeah, Barton Fink. So I was, I guess, busy thinking about <laughs> Barton Fink. So yeah, and it's an interesting way of thinking. And, and it's another element of the restoration mm. process that's all, always kind of interesting to me. Mm. I, I guess to Is that to ethical? I don't know. Like, here. can you just... It, it depends on how I say and like because it's forwarded with that information at least uh, in the print that I saw it seems to qualify but there was another example in like in Forbidden Paradise there's a couple sequences that had to be constructed using previously existing shots like so they would like repeat shots sometimes to create the sense of the scene to fill it out yeah. and the way that the MoMA distinguished that is that they had a little watermark in the corner for the scenes that they impressed and they altered there to make mm. it a cohesive film and it was absent otherwise I, and same thing with all the intertitles hugely interested in modern filmmakers setting that constraint basically giving themselves the limitation of like using the techniques of old cinema you really need to see mark jenkins bait because i really think you'd love it uh, so make sure you do at some point um in fact maybe when you're over we'll watch bait um, because I really, really, oh, think, I would love that. really think you'll appreciate it of like, this idea of, and obviously um, Guy Madden as a key example of using mm-hmm. this thing. So I, I, I do like the technical exercise of let's recreate this thing in this way, or let's film this thing in this way. But there is a wider conversation for another episode to have about the ethics of reinserting and recreating bits of, and it goes back to in that book that I read, this idea of like, and that concept Emma's got a book. My wife Emma's got this book about... In fact, I could, oh, God, it's right here. Wow. Um, God, I'm just grabbing every book today. This book here, Curated Decay, Heritage Beyond Saving, Transporting Readers from Derelict Homesteads to Imperiled Harbours, Post-Industrial Ruins to Cold War Test Sites, Curated Decay Provokes an Unparalleled Challenge to Conventional Thinking on the Conservation of Cultural Heritage. Caitlin De Silvi reconsiders the care of certain vulnerable sites in terms of ecology and entropy and explains how we must adopt an ethical stance that allows us to corroborate with rather than defend against natural processes, um, which I would link to film. And I think that, oh, what's that wonderful Decacia, which is from the person that did... Um, Dawson City, Frozen Time. 
Bill Morrison. Bill Morrison's Decacia, where he embraces the decay of film and makes that part of like an animation technique. I think there is some something to be gained out of harnessing the incompleteness of film and presenting it as is, as opposed to always feeling the thing to fill in that thing. There can be some beauty and there can be a more like ethical kind of like peace of mind in presenting mm-hmm. as is and thinking about preservation differently. But that's just amusing to present. And that's something that I wrote in my review as well that, that struck me. And I said it when we talked about within our gates mm-hmm. as well, is that the nominal representation of the incompleteness of these films yeah. is always a striking note to me about the importance of their preservation. Yeah and the need to continue this work. So seeing the end of that and seeing the uh, the difference there with the footage that comes before it, even if it is largely yes. replicated there, is still like a, a moment to me, a striking moment where for me to reflect and consider, wow, this is really something important that needs to continue to be pursued. And, you know, the inherent fragile nature of this art, you know, how, yeah. and how precious it is existence is well we talked in i think the opening episode of this idea of the history of these films they are part them being lost or destroyed is is part of their history and to refer back to my wonderful wife again uh, she used to work in a a monastery um gorton monastery in the outskirts wow. of manchester which is now deconsecrated and is a heritage site but the story of the building is that it was it fell into complete disrepair and then was rebuilt through fundraising and through a, a national heritage um grant uh, a, a heritage lottery grant that uh, my wife is involved in the the reporting on and on, on the project and i was really struck by some of the creation inside so the, the altar that was like smashed and broken has been restored but the way they've restored it is they've restored it by restoring some of the broken bits. So one of the sides, there is you can see the metal rod that's holding it up as a way of being like, no, this was broken once, and it being broken is important because this was this was vandalized. This was this was left in a way. And I really mm. like the idea of when we repair. I mean, I mean to be very trite, it's that I want to say Japanese habit that I've seen about the when things break of repairing them a bit like gold filigree of the way of like highlighting the brokenness of something, even when it comes whole again. There is a real beauty in that, but also part of the history of these works is it being incomplete or that it was once incomplete. And there is a living history of film that needs to be preserved alongside the text themselves. And it being shoved together is very important. We shouldn't just go, this is the film, and that's how it always was, because it never will be. The beautiful version that you saw will not be the colours that once were there. So trying to preserve the process of preservation in projection is difficult, but I think very, very important. It's part of the reason why I was so frustrating at to find an answer about when it was found <laughs> and where like i'm like i i'm trying to preserve the history yeah. of this here and the whole legacy the of it takes its that's a big a big part and it's not there but anyway i'm, I'm so glad mm. that it does exist here and it's so beautiful and vivid and i hope that it will get to be seen more in the way i did because yeah. i was i was so profoundly struck again i had a i thought i had a firm idea of what the film was going to look like going in based on my experience mm. and slight bits of research going in but then i was so totally blown away and then also struck by how again like like modern feeling it was in yeah. terms of a representational no, totally. standpoint. how did the wider audience react to it would did you did you feel that it was being revered throughout i mean i know you went, yeah, I know you went yeah. with your wife did, did your wife enjoy it did she did she get a lot out of it 
Yes, yes, absolutely. Good. Equally struck as well. One, one of the other interesting notes there is that, uh, and again, another great privilege of sometimes going to these festivals is that the niece of Anime Wong actually came up to oh. introduce the film. She was in attendance there. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. Yeah, and so she has made a, a big part of her life dedicated to telling the the history yeah. of her her aunt's uh, legacy That's life, and wonderful. is very much in love with the symbol that she's become. Well, there you go. So I think that 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 wraps up our discussion on a, a, a wide ranging discussion today. Actually, um, well, I hope you enjoyed listening at home as much as I enjoyed talking with my dear friend David today. Obviously, you can find us in other places. Um, you can find David over on the Twin Geeks, where I will pop up as well. And you can find uh, my work via The Stacks or The Stacks on Film. There's a Twitter you can follow and the Patreon, patreon.com slash The Stacks on Film to find all kinds of things there. But before we leave you, we leave you with an important message. So we may not know where films are lost or refound, which I think makes it even more necessary to be checking everywhere. Um, check your catalogued archives where you already have films and original <laughs> negatives, I guess. Check your original yeah. negatives to see if one of your catalogued original negatives are lost. And then please report to us. And when you're reporting, tell your friends about Ashes 2 Classics. And we look forward to joining you next time after our mid-season break. We'll be back early t- next year mm-hmm. sometime after all the holidays have passed with a big dive into German Expressionism. Yes, I just read a book about that because I am currently writing an introduction to Metropolis for a watch party as part of the Letterboxd film server. I've been invited in as a as a guest speaker, so I'm going to I've been reading about Metropolis and I will at some point you'll see that's a video somewhere so you can look for my little intro to Metropolis and Fritz Lang in general. What an interesting guy. Exciting. What a very interesting man. Um, who Interesting, horrible mm, man. Who, yeah, I'm not going to go into a huge amount of the horrible stuff, but um, him saying stories about Hitler and Goebbels there was like, yeah, I don't think this is true. This doesn't seem to be true at all. Um, you know, that specific story is slightly true, but not... No, it, it, it's a little puffed mm, up to, mm, to make it mm. seem a little like... Man, like, like I guess a storyteller. Man is a storyteller. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Is good in Le Mepris. So there you go. If you want to watch a Goddard film for our second Goddard recommendation, um, watch Contempt. <laughs> Contempt is great. There you go. Until next time, adieu. <laughs>